Welcome to the Strength Culture Podcast. I hear them chat to the noise, move too quick, can't stop for the talking. I hear them chat with the boys, not so tough, but let's keep caution. All right, so I got a special visitor with me today. We got Moses Bernard. Some of you might know Moses Bernard. Uh, if you don't, you will know him after this. Uh, Moses is a chiropractor based out of Tampa, Florida, so he's a local here. Um, there's a lot of credentials, and I'll kind of let Moses go through that on his own, but I met Moses, I think, officially had to be back in November, I believe, of of last year, Um, and Moses has been a huge inspiration for uh, for me and for my training and and a lot of my knowledge base even, so um, I'm really excited to sit down with him and and finally just have a talk and talk it out because we actually haven't done this yet. Um, so this will be really exciting. So Moses, maybe you can, you know, take the people here through who you are and what you do and your credentials. Cause it's, yeah, sure. So, um, whole lot of letters, uh, behind the name, but at the end of the day, I'm a chiropractor that just tries to get people to move their stuff better. Um, I'm originally Canadian, uh, did my undergrad there, exercise physiology and biomechanics. After that decided I wanted to go the chiropractic route, which brought me to the U S. So I went to a chiropractic school in Dallas, Texas. After that, uh, I moved out here for an internship to Florida. The original idea was to only be here for three or four months and then move back to Texas to work with a doctor who had guided me through most of my undergrad. Oh, sorry, most, uh, most of chiropractic school, excuse me. And Florida just kind of grew on me. And that was uh, 10 plus years ago. So I've been here ever since. Uh, right after graduating, uh, the chiropractic model I was in was fairly traditional, so very treatment-based, and I didn't really have any problems going on in my body, um, or I didn't formally have any problems going on in my body, so nothing that would be diagnosable, but I knew there was stuff in my body that just didn't work well, and I realized that there had there was this gap that existed between, well, I'm not necessarily in a named pathology, but I know I'm not perfect either, and there's got to be some way to measure this stuff and assess this. So that took me on a multi-year journey down uh, multiple rabbit holes and thousands of dollars of continuing education to try to figure out how do we close this gap? So how do we identify less than ideal performance without it needing to regress to levels of pain, which started with a journey into uh, functional movement screen and great cook stuff which brought me to DNS and uh, prom school rehabilitation, which brought me to some PRI uh, stuff, which ultimately led me to functional range conditioning and their system. And now most of what I do is based on that framework with some sprinklings of some of that other stuff in there. Right. And the biggest thing that the reason I worked with Moses as well is exactly for the reasons he said was being a strength athlete. I didn't really have any issues you know in in terms of pain or anything like that um but same same kind of idea where i knew that there were things that could be worked on that you know a a a third viewpoint or a second view a a, a viewpoint outside of myself could really see and look at and the thing that i really liked about you the most was you're not just any chiro right like biggest thing is that you also strengthen and is quite strong by the way so maybe he can kind of tell you guys some of his best lists because He's actually really strong, um, but you were also an athlete as well prior to, right, like through college. So um, he has a lot of that experience, which in my experience dealing with 
you know, chiros and physios and things like that, a lot of them don't have an extensive awareness when it comes to weightlifting or strength training outside of their, what they've been taught clinically, right? So a lot of them may not. Well, yeah, we, so as a profession, we aren't taught strength training. Right. Now I was taught strength training because of my undergrad. So my undergrad, um, like the CSCS curriculum was basically our exercise programming class. So people who went to my school, we knew the fundamentals of strength training and conditioning, but those aren't prerequisites to get into chiropractic school. Uh, those aren't the prerequisites to get into physical therapy school. Those aren't the prerequisites to get into medical school. So most healthcare professionals have zero training when it comes to anything related to strength and conditioning. Now, I learned it because it was part of my undergrad, but also, yeah, like I said, like you said, I was an athlete. So I ran track in college. I made a junior national team in 2001. Um, so yeah, I competed at a fairly high level in track and field. Um, when I finished running track, I decided I wanted something a little bit easier on my body than running. So I took off cycling. So I started uh, sprint cycling. And so I worked my way up to like a state level in like kind of velodrome racing. Um, and through all of that strength training never went away right. and it just kind of gradually built up and built up and built up. And as I got better control and awareness of my body, my lift started getting better and better and better. Um, using some basic programs in chiropractic school, I got my deadlift up to like 475 wow. and this was hovering around like a 175 pound body weight. Um, I hit 500 in my first year here. Uh, so that would have been 2009, maybe like 180, 185 body weight. Uh, then I decided it would be crazy if I could hit three times body weight. So that journey took me another couple of years. It would have been 2015. I pulled 600 while weighing 199. Wow. Um, a few years back, just for funsies, um, I did like a three week cycle and got up to 621. <laughs> so my strength has just kind of stayed there as a result of my joints actually working pretty nicely. Um, and once I got there, I realized, Hey, like let's add some of the, the principles I know about strength and conditioning to my mobility training or from into my mobility training. So I started progressively overloading my Jefferson curl. So got that up to 315. Uh, a 315 Jefferson curl. That is heavy. My oblique Jefferson curls at, I think I did 275. Wow. Um, so an oblique Jefferson curl, some of you guys have probably seen it. And if not, you can go to his Instagram. I know it's up there. It's basically when you rotate to the side and the weight is on the outside of the leg instead of directly in front of your toes. So, yeah. So the principles of physiology apply to every lift. So if I can train myself to get stronger in a bicep curl, I can get train myself to be stronger in a Jefferson curl. So my goals right now, movement wise, well, strength and condition wise is I'd like to get to a double body weight, single leg deadlift. And I would like to get to a double body weight Jefferson curl. Wow. And is there any need to be able to do any of those things? No, but I think I'm going to learn some fun things along the way. It's going to be a fun journey. That's going to be worthy of the next couple of years of my training. You're going to learn some things. You're going to basically shatter the mold of like what a spine should do or shouldn't do. Right. Because yep. people still have tons of misinformation and bad information about what a spine should and shouldn't be doing. And here you go. You have a 
chiropractor and, and, you know, I don't know if you so much emphasize that, you don't emphasize that too much in your own, but I think it's important because it's just, if, if you've been to a Cairo, most people have been to a Cairo, it's the normal crack and pop and don't bend your spine and don't move your neck and, and we'll see you in a few days. And, you know, so, but this is a, this is a guy who, again, is not only just, he's not just a Cairo, uh, he's not just extremely knowledgeable. Um, but there's also a whole practical side that he actually spends time in the gym and, and he's a lot stronger than most guys are because one, most guys aren't deadlifting those numbers. If they are, they're probably in pain more than likely. And two, they're definitely not doing Jefferson curls for that kind of number. So spinal flexion for probably what the average guy is deadlifting, which is quite impressive. Well, the way I look at it is as a chiropractor, what I originally signed up for is let's get people's spines healthy. And the current methodology of let's just do that by using our hands to move bones from point A to point B is wholly incomplete. And the science doesn't support it in any way, shape or form that that's going to be adequate to a spine being healthy. So I figured, well, if I'm going to be a chiropractor, I should have a pretty healthy spine. So what are going to be the elements of that? It should segment really well and should be pretty strong. So let's train them both. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that makes tons. I mean, from a very... You know, just common sense viewpoint, it's tons of sense, right? That's how most people will go. Okay, yeah, I can reason with that. So a couple things that I take I took away from Moses uh the most, which I and honestly these things have probably made strides in my training more than anything else. And the first thing I want to talk about, um, I want to talk about a few things. One, I want to talk about breathing. Yeah. And then I want to get a little bit into dynamic systems theory and by <laughs> integrity with you because you are the guy who introduced me to that, and it blows my mind every time I read it because it's so obvious. It's a black swan thing. It's like once yeah. you've seen that black swans exist, like you need to question everything yeah. you thought about swans. It hundred percent like, does, and and then it, it it's it's like a bad trip. It's gonna it's, it's, <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna change how you see everything, and that's it's that's kind of the the interesting thing about it, but. First, let's talk about breathing. And I just want to preface this because I went to the Tampa Lululemon and I took one of Moses's, uh, it was like a kin stretch, class. Kin stretch yeah, right? Kin stretch, yeah. kin stretch class, um, which was really, really good. And I remember you telling me before I got to the class to watch everybody basically breathe, right? Because we had the discussion that everyone breathes into their traps, into their neck. People not everyone, just a lot of people. <laughs> a lot of people. Um, and especially those who actually spend a lot of their craft, part of it might be breathing, right? Like, you know, not to knock on them, but yogis and things like that. And of course, I was late. And so I'm up in the front and I'm right next to Moses. So I'm looking out at all these people. And Moses starts going through these breathing drills. And like you said, about nine times out of 10, as soon as you told people to breathe in, Shoulders shrug up to their ears, all into their traps, into their neck. You see their jaw. I mean, it's just, and I was just kind of blown away because, you know, I I thought that you were, you know, I I figured there would be some, but I didn't think it would be almost everybody. It wasn't everybody, but almost everybody. Mm -hmm. So breathing, why is it so important? Obvious, other than obviously, because we need it to live. Mm -hmm. Um, But in the context of, I guess you could say, range of motion, flexibility, strength, and just 
the physiology, the biology, we kind of start there. Like, why is How do you want to go? So, so, <laughs> so it really starts from the beginning. So if you, if any of you in the audience have kids, the very, very, very first day your child was born, what was the th- first thing that they looked out for? In that if they weren't doing this, every doctor in the room was freaking out. Breathing. For exactly. Sure. So yeah. it's crying. So yeah. basically, can they breathe? Can they breathe yeah. So first off, most important thing when it comes to human physiology, breathing. Right. Okay. I can go weeks without food. I, or I can go months without food. I can right. go weeks without water. I can go a few minutes tops without oxygen. Right. Before I'm done. So oxygen is kind of a big deal. <laughs> so we've got this movement that this baby is doing thousands of times a day. Right. All right. And the brain or evolution or whatever realize, okay, I've got this thing I'm doing thousands of times a day. Can I dual purpose this thing? Can I make my diaphragm work not just for moving air? And what ends up happening is you get this toe contraction. You get the muscles of your abs and your obliques and your back and your pelvic floor. They all turn on. They all learn to turn on with your diaphragm. But what ends up happening when your diaphragm goes downwards, coupled with contraction of some of this other stuff, is you get a tiny little bit of pressure. And what that pressure does is it create, if you think of blowing up a ball or blowing up a tire, the more pressure you have, the more stable it is. So as you get a tiny bit of pressure, that baby now has enough stability to be able to move their eyes without their head coming along for the ride. So getting eye tracking is basically a measure of their stability. They get a little bit more pressure, they learn to control their head and neck. They get a little bit more pressure. They learn to control their shoulders. They get a little bit more. They learn to roll over. They get a little bit more. They learn to crawl. So the entire process of infant movement development is a lagging measure of how much pressure can this child create. So this is how we learn to move. Okay. And this serves us pretty well. So 99.9% of the time, as we are breathing, we should be coupling that with this co-contraction that creates pressure. All right. There is a time where we shouldn't do that. It's when a tiger is coming after me. So all bets are off. I do not want a deep, relaxed breath into my pelvic floor and low back. If a tiger is running after me, I want to engage my neck muscles. I want to engage my shoulder muscles because by doing these things, not only does the air come in faster, which is more likely to keep me alive. I also engage my traps, my SCMs. So fun fact of all of the muscles in your body that you can control, that you can move, they all basically come off of either the uh, cervical or the lumbar plexus which means the nerves, they go into the spinal cord and then they branch out to your arms and to your legs, okay? So pretty much every muscle in your body is controlled from the spinal cord, okay? There are two muscles that are peripheral muscles that come straight off your brainstem, your trap and your SEM. Wow. So they have a totally different nerve supply from every other muscle in your body. So let's think about what your trap and your SEM do as a team. Your SEM, when they co-contract, they shorten your neck muscle down and they work as an accessory breathing muscle. So they basically decrease the target for an attacker to get me while elevating my rib cage to get breath in faster. The trap when it fires basically shrugs my shoulders to further protect that area. So I've got these two muscles that are basically shorts or straight from the brain to talk to those muscles. So if we think of evolutionary history, for something to have that level of priority, 
it must be a big deal. Yeah. So we have this system that trains us to go into stress fight or flight physiology very, very easily. Because if we, if it takes us time, it's too late. Tiger eat. Right. Okay. Now, the fight or flight response is designed for a few minutes. Right. It's designed to get out of the emergency. But modern society has created artificial stressors. So we've got work stuff and family stuff and financial stuff and a coronavirus pandemic that could only exist in a city state. Right. So when we're hunter gatherers, like there's no way coronavirus creates this problem. Right. So we now have stressors that have lasted that are lasting for weeks, months, or years at a time. So we have a system that's only designed to last two or three minutes going for months, weeks, or years at a time. So when these muscles are going 24-7, when they're only designed to go for a few minutes, there's all sorts of problems that show up with that. The most obvious being just the musculature. So I've got tight muscles that are only designed to go for a few minutes that are now going for days, months, or weeks at a time. Down through here, when I, when I do this, I basically have lost my intra-abdominal pressure. So now living my day-to-day -day life on a flat tire. So I have no core stability. Does that wow. make sense? Yeah. So that's a problem. What's, what's really, yeah, it's a huge problem. Yeah. Now here's where it gets even more fun is there's this other man-made thing we've created called vanity where we've arbitrarily decided that this is sexier than this right. for whatever reason, right. totally arbitrary, right. but small waist. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. So having a small sucked in waist right. and using waist trainers and whatever yeah. stupidness is training your body to necessarily and mandatorily have an apical fight or flight stress breathing pattern that is coupled with a total lack of core stability. That's, that's a major problem. Okay, so now we understand why breathing is so, yeah, so we went deep. important. Now, here's what's oh, really cool good. about it. That's what, here's what's that's really what cool is it's really easy to fix if you pay a tiny bit of attention right. to it. And so spending two or three minutes a day for a few weeks right. is enough to switch that pattern back into this becoming the normal instead of this being the normal. But you then go and turn on the news and watch 30 minutes of stuff. Yeah. You're right back Especially here. right now. Exactly. Yeah. So you've got to understand that there's a ton of theories going 275. Yeah, you're exactly. right back here. Right, yep. So there's a bunch of stuff in day-to-day -day life that are pushing you the stress direction. And if you don't have a tool to pull yourself out of it, that direction is going to win. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's a really practical, but, but in-depth understanding of, of breathing and why it's important, right? Because it's it's such it's made into such an esoteric thing anymore, where yeah. it's like there's so much fluff behind it. But, but what's just the real practicality behind it? So that that's pretty much it right there. So let's talk, let's let's segue this into biotensegrity. <laughs> and because breathing has a lot to do with the the uh, compression and tension system as well. Yeah. And, and they, they intermingle. And this is people's minds are about to get blown because if you've been following me, I've talked a little bit about it. And for those that have reached out to me, I've shared some of the content and most of the content I've shared actually came from Moses. Um, so he's going to blow your minds because the crazy part about this and what he's going to tell you is it's, it's not even that complicated. It really is. It's not, it's not super complicated and it's not, only you have to be an engineer to really even understand it. Like it's actually really, really simple. I would say it's more simple 
than what you learn. You yeah, know, the, new, about, the Newtonian about, biomechanics yes. model is more complicated. It's than the way more complicated. And in my experience, training as a coach, as an athlete, things that seem complicated usually aren't true, right? <laughs> like, like the biggest truths lie in simplicity <laughs> and why biotins, it sounds like this, oh, I don't know, it's a, that's a kind of a big word. I want you to just go into it because it's, it's, it's literally my favorite thing. And I still don't understand how it's not so mainstream. It's definitely getting out there more and more. I'm starting to see people talk about it. I'm starting to see people talk about dynamic systems theory more and more, mm-hmm. but it's still, it's not even close to, you know, where it should be. Um, so, so why don't you go into that a little bit? Yeah. So I really wish I had my uh, 10 secretary model here with me, uh, uh, but, um, yeah, yeah. the traditional ideas around biomechanics, were taken from regular mechanics and regular mechanics is basically been taken from architecture. So the only reason they cared about biomechanics in the Roman era and Greek Roman era was to build bigger, more impressive stuff. Okay. Now a building plays by very special rules and that building only needs to resist vertical force for the most part. Right. So when you have a building, whether it is a house, whether it is a work building, whatever it happens to be, that building has vertical support structures. And those vertical support structures are exclusively weight-bearing. So the building has these vertical columns that absorb all of the force. Okay, and So it is a system that gets all of its stability from its ability to resist compression in one specific direction. If it is trying to resist force from any other direction, that building is no longer stable. So if I have a building that is off even a degree at the foundation, that building is wildly unstable. So we worried about buildings well before we started cutting people open and studying anatomy. So in looking at human anatomy and seeing that there are some bones that are kind of vertically aligned, we assumed that the bones played by some of the same rules as some of the vertical structures of the building. So this is where ideas around posture come from. The idea that, hey, if I'm straight up and down, I can absorb force better. And if I'm tilted to the side, I'm not as good at absorbing force, okay? But if we take this to its logical extreme, it totally falls apart. Because everyone who's listening to this right now has slept before. So you lied on your side for hours and hours and hours, and you didn't crumble to pieces. Right, which would be shearing forces on exactly. the spine if the spine were a column. Yes, yeah. if I put you, or if I take a building and it's one degree off, it's totally unstable. Right. We can resist force vertical. We can resist it lying on our side. We can resist it in handstands. We can resist it in outer space in zero gravity. We can resist it underwater under external compressive loads. We can handle for we can handle distraction. So you can shake my I can pull you and not rip your arm out of your socket. I can push on you and you don't crumble to pieces. We have this ability to handle compressive and distractive forces from every direction. And there is no pure compressive model that has the ability to do that. So much to the, the the point now that robotic engineers are looking to the tensegrity model to start designing robots because, because they're better because they're better <laughs> and because we've seen how robot you know 
what's the biggest thing we see with robots, not in the movies, but in real life, is that they're very they're rigid, they're, they're rigid in their movement, right? They don't move like fluidly, yeah. right? So, um, yeah, because they were all built based on the classic Newtonian biomechanics model. And then when they start to realize, hey, wait, if I build this robot with tension and compression elements instead of just compression elements, hey, this robot moves way more smoothly, right? Yeah. And so in the human body, what ends up happening is if we actually study this and we actually realize that the pure compression model doesn't make sense, what emerges is a model that is defined as tensegrity. So a tensegrity structure is a structure where it has its own inherent stability, independent of external force. So in a zero gravity environment, this house just crumbles to bits. Right. Okay? It can't exist in zero gravity. A human body can. So a tensegrity structure has its own inherent structure, independent of external forces, that is created from an, a continuous internal tension network that is counteracted by discontinuous compression elements. So you basically have stuff that's under tension and stuff that's under compression, and they together, they counteract each other. Right. And this is how the human body works. Right. Now, what's cool about this is the compression elements are discontinuous. In the human body, your bones are the compression elements. So your bones are discontinuous. Your bones aren't actually touching each other. Right. So when we, if we really think about it, if I am basically just doing a push-up, there is zero force going through my elbow joint. I don't feel anything in my elbow when I do a push-up because my elbow works pretty normally. Right. So there's no compressive force going through the bones. So when these soft tissues are doing what they're supposed to, there is zero force going across the compressive elements. And this is important because most of the recommendations out there around safety of your knee or your back or your hip is around decreasing force not normalizing biomechanics. Right. So if I have normal biomechanics of my hip, there is zero compressive force going through my hip joint. Right. If I put 800 pounds on my back, there's zero compressive force going through my hip joint. It's right. going through the soft tissues. There's zero compressive force going through my spinal discs. It's going through the adjacent compressive uh, tensile tissues. Yeah. There's zero force going through my knee when I run a marathon because it is not going through the knee joint. Right. It's dispersed amongst the whole system. Yeah, I mean that's that's crazy. So so, then, so when we look at you know a lot of people have probably dealt with some sort of hip impingement like FAI, mm -hmm. you know, AC joint impingement. You know, everyone gets these impingements and impingements. Yeah. That is essentially a the system's off, right? Yeah. Like the, so there's some imbalance in the tensegrity structure such that you have compressive elements that are supposed to be discontinuous. Right. They are now continuous. Right. So they're now absorbing force in a direction that they're not designed to absorb force. Right. And things adapt. Right. The best or the most common adaptation that the body makes when things are exposed to force is to create more tissue. Right regardless of what it is. If I do a bunch of strength training, my body adapts to that extra force by creating more bicep tissue. Yeah. Okay. If I've been, if I have babied my hands my entire life and I start strength training, I'm going to add more tissue into my hand in the right. form of callus right. to adapt to the, the added forces. If I have bones in my shoulder that are touching, that are not supposed to be touching, they will adapt to that abnormal force by creating more tissue right. that we call a bone spur. Right. 
It's the same thing. We're yeah. just adding tissue to force, to yeah. adapt to and force. Then, and then even just in strength training, we've shown on DEXA scans that people that have lifted and having extensive lifting history or just strength training. I don't want to say lifting because it doesn't yeah. necessarily have to be with weights. Yeah. Um, bone density increases, even organs, all these, you know, even when you do cardiovascular training, you know, you atrophy or hypertrophy the heart, yep. you know, so the um, hypertrophy, the muscle, the, um, the size of the thickness of the lumen of the blood vessel. Yeah. Is, uh, I mean, it, there's like, it, it happens that, I mean, even when you get a cut on your leg and you get a scar, a scar is, you know, it's that adaptation too. Yeah. So now let's, let's tie this into breathing, right? Because breathing has a massive role in the compressive in, in, intention forces in, within the body, right? Like I know that you explained in your spine model mm -hmm. why breathing is so important for your spine um, and especially tying into what you just said about how our body is not, there's no bone on bone, right? Like mm -hmm. the bones are essentially floating in a network of, of soft tissue. Mm -hmm. um, so where does breathing come into play for this and why is it important relative to biotensegrity and, and what's its role there? So the spine is a little tricky. So let's say, well, randomly the guy for this, sweet, got a ball. Cool. <laughs> so we have a foam roller and we got a basketball, okay? So let's pretend this is a bunch of different pieces. So a bunch of different sections of spine, okay? And it's attached, glued to this ball, okay? Since it's, they're glued together, if I add more pressure to the ball, that ball is going to expand right. and the spine is going to expand with it. Right. So I decompress the spine by creating intra-abdominal pressure. Conversely, if I lose intra-abdominal pressure, whether it is because I'm stressed out, I'm being vain, it's waist right. trainer season, right. then I'm deflating the ball. I'm losing intra-abdominal pressure. And by definition, if I lose intra-abdominal pressure, I get spinal compression happening at the same time. Wow. So it is a very obvious, clear one-to-one -one relationship of yeah. if I have pressure, spine decompresses. As I lose pressure, spine loses compression. And we can see this. It's very, yeah. very obvious. Yeah, like we can see sure. this on motion MRI. Just ask someone to take a regular breath, not even thinking about it. As the diaphragm lowers, you see decompression of the spine and vice versa. That's, that's wild. And most people probably don't even know that. Yeah. So, you know, there's all, never been a study that hasn't shown this. Actually, there is an awesome study that um, VR Garcia is the lead author. Um, and it was out of Stuart McGill's lab. Okay. Uh, and it was on bracing and intra-abdominal pressure and spine stiffness and stability. Right. So there's actually a really cool study. The way they set it up is they basically like glued something to someone's back and there was like a weight back there. Okay. And what they did was they said, Hey, I'm going to drop the weight now go. And basically, basically you had warning to kind of stabilize yourself. Right. Okay. Then they said, I'm not going to tell you, I'm just going to drop the weight. Go. So your eyes are closed. They drop the weight and your spine moves. Right. Then they say, okay, I want you to brace. And then, but I'm still not going to tell you. So it's like, you're an inhale, you're in a brace and they drop the weight and you move a little bit. Right. And then they say, okay, I want you to suck in. Okay. And then they drop the weight and you move a little bit. Right. Okay. In order of stability, warning was the highest. Bracing was a little bit lower. Okay. So knowing that it's coming right. is better preparation than not knowing and still being really strong. Right. Okay. Uh, lower was doing nothing. Below doing nothing was sucking in. Oh, wow. So your spine was less stable 
by consciously drawing in and consciously doing like the belly button to spine, the TVA activation thing, than doing nothing. It is worse than nothing to cue sucking in and drawing in. Wow. So it's not just indifferent. It's worse than nothing. It is doing harm. Medically speaking, it's committing malpractice. We look at first doing harm, telling someone to suck in is doing worse than doing nothing. Right. And to make, to make clear for people too, when we're breathing, we want 360 degrees of pressure, right? Because that's the other mistake that people make is that they just belly breathe, belly breathing, right? So then they just push into their abs, which in my experience, people have probably hernias and things like that, where they push all the pressure again into one area um, instead of being dispersed against 360 degrees in all directions, again, kind of even violates the whole tensegrity principle, right? Like it's, it's just, you want, especially with the breathing, you want it all to expand out. You don't want just want one area. Um, so the more things you can dissipate force into, the less damage there or the less potential for damage there is. Okay. Right. So if I throw you an egg and you catch it like that, whereas if you cradle it in over right. a longer distance, right. by allowing more room for dispersion, the egg's less likely to right. break. If I'm trying to stabilize my spine and I can distribute that pressure forwards and sideways and backwards and all the way to my pelvic floor, that's a lot of surface area of tissue that can dissipate that force. So now any one piece of tissue doesn't have to be that strong for the overall system to be able to to handle a lot of pressure. But let's say I'm only expanding forwards and it's only up into like the top of my rectus. Well, now this chunk of tissue now needs to absorb all of the force that all of this is designed to be able to absorb. So the odds that it fails is going to be higher. Much higher, yeah. And the other thing too is when you look at injuries and overuse injuries, right, is other than just pattern overload where they just keep repeating the same pattern and pattern, but it it goes hand in hand, right? Because if you don't change up certain areas, I would say the shoulders are probably a lot more susceptible to pattern overload than the hips but that plays a big role as well Well, i think it's only because of what we choose to do the sports we choose right right okay like there is no sport where you have to kick a ball as hard as possible a hundred times in a row at slightly different angles right so there is no sport that is competitive penalty kicks right Right. But there is a sport that is competitive throwing a ball in the same it's called direction. baseball, right? Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I think it's just we've created sports yeah. that have pattern overload in the shoulder. Right. We haven't created sports that have pattern the same types of pattern overload in the hip. Yeah. If we did, I think we would see the same types of injuries. But, and and I think, too, just, just as a nature, you know, like you just said, almost any sport I can think of, you're – you're going multiple directions, especially with the hips. You're cutting different directions and mm-hmm. extending and flex. Like you're, you're, there are probably just a lot more variables yeah. occurring. So yeah, let's think about motion. being a pitcher. What is the task? Try to have the narrowest yeah. release point possible. Yeah. Not try to throw the ball in a bunch of different ways. It's try to have the hand exactly there, yeah. no matter what pitch you're throwing, yeah. have it at the exact same spot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's wild. So let's now let's segue this over into dynamic systems theory because this is, because this is where stuff starts to get really interesting this is where you start to understand why range of motion and strength within range of motion is important why you have you know not only i guess you could say passive static range but you also have some active range of motion you have some control 
and this is one of the biggest this the dynamic systems theory is also mind blowing because again you just go wow this is this it makes tons of sense but you never hear really about this either like yeah. and this is almost i don't want to say relatively new but even if you youtube it there's like a couple videos. Yeah, there's the, nothing out there from the University of Texas. From like yeah, they're terrible videos. Yeah, from, we're, like, we're we're gonna have to make a dynamic. And I think 2003 or something. Like so it, it's relatively new in terms of you know information and, and just people even putting it out there. But again, when you hear this, you go, "Holy crap! That it makes tons of sense." And the people that I've explained it to go, "Wow! Like, why don't we learn about this? Or why?" And it's a great question. Yeah. So the the origins of studying this. Um, it, what's his name? Why is it I'm really drawing a blank? Um, Russian guy. Um, yeah, we can find out. Yeah. So, anyways, so the origins of this, uh, the father and father of modern oh, biomechanics. Bernstein. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Nikolai Bernstein. Yeah. Um, he was basically commissioned by the Soviet bloc. Okay. So we're at the, the Cold War era, and his job was to try to find ways to make workers more efficient. Okay, Mother Russia, we got to make everyone work well for the party. Right, okay, exactly. so he did basically the equivalent of slow mo video analysis. Now, they didn't really have video at the time, he just took really rapid pictures, is how they did it. And what he was looking for is he wanted to see what made good blacksmiths different from bad blacksmiths. So, what was it about the expert blacksmith and how they were swinging the hammer? that made them an expert. Right. And what he expected was the, be the best blacksmith had this one perfect route of the most efficient way to swing the hammer, right. okay? And we have a tendency to think this is how it works in sports. Like there's one perfect way to pitch a ball, there's one perfect way to do a squat, there's one perfect way to swing a golf club. And when we look at the analysis, what we actually find is the exact opposite. Like, not just like kind of different. It is the exact opposite. People are already going, what? That's crazy. Because yeah. that's not what they've been taught. Exactly. Right. So what they found was that the more skilled the blacksmith, the more task variability they had. Right. They had decreased um, result variability, but increased task variability. So let's say the hammer or the nail is right here. Okay. An expert blacksmith has a million different ways to subtly swing their hammer, but still hit that nail in the exact same spot. Right. A novice only has maybe three strategies to hit that nail. Right. And if it's not one of those three strategies, they miss. Right. So what you see with very skilled performance is increased levels of variability, right. not decrease. And we've actually measured this um, using more advanced things with um, different sports. So if we take a world-class golfer and we strap them full of electrodes on their pecs, their abs, their glutes, right. their thighs, their hamstrings, and they have a new golf swing, okay? And we video their golf swing. Right. We get some printout of the electrical activity. So let's say the left glute fired and the right, right quad fired. We get some, I guess, demonstration of what happened, right. okay? We have that exact same golfer do the exact same swing, okay? The video analysis of the swing is exactly the same the muscle activation sequence entirely different. Completely different. Completely different. Yeah. They do another swing. Looks exactly the same. Muscle sequence, totally different. Right. So the better you are, the more ways you can accomplish the task. So instead of, instead of doing something 10,000 times to find the perfect way to do it, essentially you develop 
10,000 different ways to accomplish the same task. Exactly. So why this matters when it comes to joint health is let's say I go to do that golf swing. Okay. My brain solves that task based on its motor control of any individual piece. So my brain is going to say in that moment, what is the state of reality in my shoulder blade? What's going on with my shoulder? What are my options in my elbow? What is my motor control of my wrist? And based on that assessment, so based on the information coming in from those different pieces, it creates some way to solve that task. At, at a rate faster than you'll ever be able to. Yeah, yeah, this is all, yeah. This is all happening. No control over this, by yeah. the way. So, this, so your, what, your what you do, what you do have control over is how well each piece works. Right. So, what are the options available? Okay. So, if I'm trying to get from one city to another city, and this is the only, best analogy, okay? by the way. And there's only one road from city one to city two. Right. Okay. And there's only one lane. Okay. If there's traffic, everyone's fucked. Everybody. Okay. So (laughs) what happens if I now have three or four lanes on that one road? Right. I've got more options. Okay. What happens if I have two or three roads with four or five lanes? What happens when I have 30 roads and they each have five lanes and there's no traffic? I can literally take any route I want to get to my destination. And even if something goes wrong on one of those roads, it doesn't matter because I've got a million different ways to get there. And that is how your brain makes movement. Right. So even with the same motor task, right? If you take bench press, because they've even shown this in bench press where they've shown bar paths, right? Because everyone used to think the way it used to be taught was when you bench press, there's an optimal bar path, Mm -hmm. but same exact study. They look different bar paths, the, the, the <laughs> very best bench pressers, the bar path changed every single rep. That does never, not surprise me. Even a little bit. I'm so happy yep. that they've studied this. That is never, awesome. I love it, it, it. I love it. It was never the same bar path. So what, what looks, what a movement, even if you think of a movement that has limited range of motion in terms of how much range you display, right? Like a bench press is a pretty common one. We all rag on it because of your shoulders and all this, but just even within that little tiny movement, why is having options so important? Like, again, because people think, oh, it's just from here to here. Like, I don't need to have that many options, right? But, but really, the more options you have, the better. Yeah, so the more, op- so we've got to appreciate that a muscle doesn't fire in isolation, right? Okay, so when I go to do a bench press, there's millions of pec muscles that are firing, okay? And the way a muscle fires is not the way, or the way a muscle fiber fires isn't the way a muscle fires. So me contracting my pec for three seconds is not one to three second contraction. It's millions of split second on off, on off, on off, on off. So this muscle fires and relaxes, and this one fires and relaxes, this one fires and relaxes. So you've got millions of muscles in real time. Some are firing, some are relaxing, and the big picture of that, you see a smooth movement. But the reality is there's a bunch of little muscles that are firing, okay? If I had no variability, I would only ever train one line of those muscle fibers, okay? By having that variability, I'm now training more of the stuff. So I now have more options of how to accomplish the task. Right, so, and this is even something that we've seen in strength training. When you take coaches that have dared to go against the grain, Uh, Charles Poliquin was a big advocate of changing up angles. Um, You also see, of course, in in conjugate powerlifting, you know, 
Louis Sim- different exercise. Louis yeah. Simmons was ragging forever because there were these big, strong guys, and they're always changing up their exercises, and they're constantly changing the angles and you know the velocities and all these different things. And he kept producing bigger, stronger guys. Um, so in the strength world, you know, even when it comes down to a bench press, training incline bench press and decline bench press and, and dips and all in overhead press and all these different angles, you not only strengthen more muscle fibers, but now a broader range of motion for any point that bar path changes even the tiniest bit. Again, you just have, you just develop more options and more strength. Yeah. So, so if if, if my task is strength, right. It's about my ability to create force. Okay. And that is going to be limited by how much tissue is available. Right. So if I can access more tissue, there's more stuff I can train. And if I can train more stuff, I have the option or I have the, the upper limit of the strength that I can build is higher. Yeah. So this is where guys like John Quint come into West Side, yeah. and so let's take the conjugate system. Let's now add yeah. mobility training to it. So okay, if I'm trying to build the strength of my shoulder, okay, my shoulder flexibility is this. Right. There's only so much tissue that I can train. Right. But if I now add some more f- shoulder flexibility, there's now a new range of tissue that I can access. There's more stuff I can train. Right. And so it's this constant interplay of exercise variability so that I'm training the tissue in different ways, mobility training so that I, there's more tissue I can access right. and just never end it. Yeah. And, and the thing that I think it's important for people to understand is even a very, what seems to be a nominal amount of, of range is an exponential amount of mass that you can develop mass yeah. and options within the, the tissue and, and the, fi- the muscle fibers and things like that, which is really important because again, a degree, if you like improving by one degree gives you within the joint itself a lot more options. And you don't, you don't, it, because it sounds so small, you know, it, it seems unreal, but it's true. It's just, you know, and of course we want to open that up to have the optimal that all joints are capable of because joints do have, you know, degrees of, of range of motion that can be, be tested again, but which change based on muscle mass and, and things like that. You, like a guy with smaller calves and smaller hamstrings, knee is going to flex more than yeah. a guy who has larger hamstrings, yeah. which has its benefits depending on what you're trying to do and also can have its drawbacks. But mm-hmm. um, there are things that will change that for the most, for, for a little bit, but for the most part, it's all pretty much the same. Yeah. Yeah. So, so dynamic systems theory, you know, the, and the thing that I, th- I think about a lot is you look at very best athletes and, and you know, you use the best, um, you know, blacksmiths as an example, bench pressers, you've seen the same thing. Mm-hmm. But even if you look at, at things like basketball, because one of there's three, three, it's, it's environment, right? So your environment can also impact. So is, the it is the, it's the, task right. is the environment it's the constraints right so it's what am i trying to do shoot a basketball right. that's the task get ball into hoop. right okay the environment is am i playing outside where there's a wind gust right. okay am i playing inside where there's no wind gust but there's weird lights coming in which is changing reflexively what's going on with my body right. okay maybe someone yells right before i'm about to shoot the free throw yep. and because i hear it on this side instead of this side my 
my uh, inner ear reflexively changes a little bit, okay? There's ambient temperatures, okay? So at the start of the game, my core temperature is one thing, so my free throw would be one thing. At the end of the game where I'm sweating and I'm out of breath, my core temperature is higher. That's something different. So we've got all sorts of different environmental variables. And each of these makes the, ta the execution of the task different, okay? Now, let's talk about the constraints, okay? So free throw, I'm standing exactly... 10 feet from the basket, right. okay? Sorry, 12 feet from the basket. Um, I do a jump shot. I'm now in the air, right. okay? I'm going to do a jump shot, and I get hit in the side. Now I'm off at a, a bit of a different angle, okay? Let's do a fadeaway, okay? So there's, there's the task can change, the environment can change, um, and there can be limitations of, like, what's on the body. Right. So, yeah, so all these things make it a different thing that's happening yeah. like great athletes great movers in my opinion we see the the biggest spectrum in, in variability right they they tend for the most part they tend to be able to accomplish the task at hand under the greatest amount of different circumstances right mm -hmm. if you get hit by the you know because we all know the guy that johnny's in practice he can hit a thousand free throws in a row mm -hmm. but as soon as he steps in the stadium and again like you said the lights are different he yeah. smells the popcorn yeah you know someone called him a loser right before he shot the free throw yeah. all these things impact their ability to perform mm -hmm. um so, so yeah we look at a michael jordan we look at a kobe right. bryant when we look at what are the most amazing things they did it's these off balance off angle shots right. when the game was on the line yeah like who can process that many right. variables and still accomplish the task. Right. That's what makes you a multimillionaire is being exactly. able to deal with that. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> or feel like a multimillionaire. Yeah. yeah. So, and then coordination is essentially a motor task. It's, it's how we accomplish a motor task. Right. So when we look at people, we go, wow, he's really coordinated. So coordination, coordination is the learning of a skill based on the options available. Right. So the more coordinated you are generally, the more options you have available to yeah. accomplish any task, yeah. which is coordination. We all know is a huge. Uh, so, some, so, so, so something, that, something yeah. that's, that I observed maybe six to eight months into post FRC when I started doing cars and like my wrist, my elbows and stuff like that is I remember I like dropped my phone. Okay. I was just like in the kitchen. I was on my phone, just randomly dropped it, which happens. Okay. And I like bobbled it a little bit and I caught it at this super weird angle. And this would have never happened like right. at any other point in my life. Like the phone would have just hit the ground and it was like, huh, that was weird. And then like a few weeks later, something similar happened. Like I dropped a knife and like, boom, caught it. And like, I noticed over like the preceding weeks and months that just random things that like weren't really that coordinated for me in the past started being more coordinated. And I started talking to some other people who had a similar journey and they're like, yep, like I noticed the exact same thing. It's like, I don't drop X, Y, and Z anymore. Right. Because if in the split second of phone is in the air, dart hand that general direction, if I have slightly better motor control and awareness of my shoulder and my elbow and my wrist and my fingers, my ability to accomplish that task is going to be a little bit higher. And it's gotten to the point where it's like, it just happens. And seems again, so I didn't, right? I didn't train my, I didn't right. do like, it's not like you're doing drills. Yeah. I wasn't doing yeah, knives yeah, in yeah, air. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, so, just right, like, right. just arbitrary, just happened. Right. So right. this is the byproduct of having pieces that work. 
um, Timbers the other day talked about like rolling his ankle in a trail. And he was just like on a trail run, like rolled his ankle and just like popped out of it and was like, Good one. Fine. But probably prior to what he's helped develop with Laspina, probably would have done him in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So, 10 years of daily doing ankle cars, his ankle had incredible proprioception in that position. So, I was like, Oh, fine. Yeah, that's 10 years. People go, Wow, that's a lot. That's a long time. But people don't realize that rolling your ankle in high school, you have. 10, 15, you know, depending on how old you are, years of, of consequences that have occurred from not ever really reestablishing that range or that control of those things. I know so, I did. Yeah. I mean, I've been in that mm-hmm. same boat, right? So we all, we all, whether we experience it daily or from time to time or not, we all have been there at some point somewhere. We've all fallen off a bike or skateboard or well, trip. Yeah, or whatever, the body you know is I mean? awesome at compensating. Yeah. And it's awesome at compensating because if we weren't, we'd get eaten by tigers. Right. So if I rolled my ankle yesterday and a tiger is coming at me today, my, I'm not going to say, well, roll my ankle yesterday. <laughs> Got to take it easy. No, I'm going to no. find a way to get away from tiger without an ankle. Yeah. So we're awesome at compensating. Yeah. So let's say I fall off the monkey bars when I'm five years old and I land on my shoulder kind of funny. So my brain's going to say, all right, let's protect the shoulder a little bit. Maybe I'm going to use a little bit more shoulder blade. Okay. And since there's nothing in our education movement curriculum to make sure that that's restored. Now that person's using a little bit more shoulder blade for the rest of their life. Okay. And then when they're 10 years old, they roll their ankle and to compensate for that ankle roll. Now they've shifted their weight off a little bit. And then a few years later, they blow out their ACL and now they've got some other compensation. And then they're 25 years old and they're sedentary and they blow out their back. And then there's some other compensation. So no matter where you are today, you are just the sum total of every single compensation you've made right. in your life, which you made for an awesome reason. Right. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't be here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and I think it's important to know that people, while we should work on these things, they're not going to do you in, right? Which I think is the other thing that I really like about yeah, how, yeah. You, how you approach things and how yeah. you view things, right? Because you do get a lot of camps of that say – this has you know, to be perfect this, before you do anything. Yeah, you're not, this doesn't do this, so absolutely do not do this. And I'm sure under certain circumstances, that's very valid, right? Like mm-hmm. if you break your arm, don't go and try to punch, you know, there's like, <laughs> don't there's, very, somebody, there's, yeah. ob- there's very obvious things, but in terms of getting it back and, 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 and maybe, you know, there we've seen people post, there's, we're all asymmetrical, number one, yep. you know, we <laughs> all know that, even though it may drive us crazy, I know it drives me crazy sometimes, it's just something we have to accept. We're asymmetrical by nature. You know, our organs are different sizes and in different places. And, you know, our lung, everything. Diaphragm shape differently. Everything, right? So, yeah. Blood types are different. Like, we're we're just, we're not the same. So, it's not going to do you anything. I think it's important people know that is why we we should work on these glaring things, things that might be, like, when I work with you, you know, what I really liked was, okay, some hip internal rotation, um, and really as a result of that, I had some lack of hip extension on that same side mm-hmm. and some shoulder blade stuff, but it wasn't like I've experienced where it's like this, 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 and you need to do all this and you can't do all the stuff. Never allowed to strength train. Never allowed to do anything until all of this is perfectly fixed. But when I came to you, it was a totally different approach, right? It was like, Oh, just really, I just want you to focus on your hip. And, and you got, you gave me like a couple big focal points mm-hmm. and like, I'm sure hopefully if you haven't experienced it yet, I experienced was just with the breathing one was massive changes everywhere Two, it's, it's such low hanging fruit. It's such a game. I know it's, and, and I, I I would be, I have used the same thing 
when approaching people is looking at how do you breathe? You know, I've even gone through classes with people opening up with the different breathing drills you've shown, like mm -hmm. feeling the obliques, feeling the low back, feeling the pelvic floor, feeling the abs, feeling expansion in these areas. And those things alone, people have had natural neck adjustments, back adjustments, hip adjustments, yep. knee adjustments. I mean, you name it. It's, it's, so that's kind of like number one. Number two, something that I kind of want to go into a lot because this is my baby now and <laughs> what I've experienced. I was a baseball player, so I had tons of my own issues. Like, you know, rotating the one side yeah. all the time was most of my life. Mm -hmm. And I'm one of the... While developing, while your bones are... Fused. Right, exactly. And I'm one of the unfortunate ones that didn't really play many other sports, you know, outside of baseball. I was a three-season-a-year baseball player. I didn't play soccer. I didn't really play bass. I didn't do anything else. So my 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 mechanics were just purely baseball, um, which is something we kind of panned over to. The interesting thing, just as a, a side note here is most great athletes were multi-sport athletes because they, you know, as we now know, as more options. Moses, <laughs> more options, more motor tasks. Um, and some of the greatest, the great, great, greats were multi-sport athletes in, in, in at least very, very good. I mean, even Michael Jordan was a baseball player. He wasn't, you know, Barry Bonds. Or well, Mark here's Dwyer, the thing is he, he was, was a triple a baseball player. Yeah. That's one step shy of the pros. Of the okay? pros. Do you know how hard it is to be a triple A baseball player? It's hard. So being a triple A baseball player is the is basically the same as being on a crap it's Div one NC2A. Right. right. Like yeah. if you're the starting quarterback for Alabama. You're a good football player. Yeah. Like you're an above average. You're an yeah, elite. Yeah. You're elite. Player. You're one of the best. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, like the Bo Jacksons, the Deion Sanders, yeah, like they're multi-sport athletes, and at least we're we're very. I mean, everyone says even LeBron James could have played football. He could have picked up basically yeah. whatever sport he wanted to play. Mm -hmm. um, have you ever seen like every once in a while there would be like a video of like a dunk contest of like NBA of like NFL players? Yeah, and even um, and they're you, all you Bolt, like, you know, yeah, right? Like, yeah, like Bolt. yeah, they're all just yeah. like throwing windmills and yeah. like they're just. Yeah, just just natural. Yeah, they're right? athletes. I mean, athletes. <laughs> so, yeah. So don't be afraid of these. Like that. Don't, I think that a lot of people live in fear because they're told that, you know, imbalances and these things are just going to do you in and they're, they're just a hazard waiting to happen, which, you know, we, I, we don't really have any way to correlate. I like to look at it as a risk factor. So if I have a Tesla, okay. And I'm using Teslas because they're incredibly safe. Right. Okay. And I only ever drive the speed limit and I never drive during rush hour. Okay. The odds of me getting into a catastrophic life ending collision are extremely low. Right. Not impossible, right. but extremely low. Okay. Let's say I'm driving my Ferrari at 3 a.m. at 150 miles an hour while I'm drunk with no seatbelts. Right. I might get home okay. Yeah, but I might not. So the <laughs> risk, we can all agree, the risk of a drunk pro athlete in the Ferrari is worse, or of something bad happening, right. is higher than the risk of soccer mom in the Tesla. Right. Okay. So I look at things as can we trend you towards soccer mom and Tesla? Right. Okay. So I might say, hey, your left hip is kind of pro athlete in Ferrari. Right. Your right hip 
okay, that's drunk college kid. Right. Uh, like basically just kind of looking at your entire body saying, okay, this works really, really well. Right. Feel free to do whatever you want. Right. This is a little bit below average. You should be fine. If something were to happen, I wouldn't be that surprised, but hey, keep doing it. Right. This one piece, it's like, hey, this really isn't working that well. You can still do it. Just understand that there's right. going to be consequences. Yeah. So I'd be working on closing that gap right. while working on the thing that you love. Yeah. And I think that was the coolest thing for me is seeing you was, was you saw that scale, right? Like there were the, okay, this is a 10. This needs to be handled. These are fives or sixes and these are ones and twos type yeah. of deal, right? So, yeah. so the big thing was handle the tens and the nines like like these are the riskiest yeah. areas or if you don't don't be surprised if something happens. <laughs> don't come back to me in three weeks and, and wonder why my head's blown out and then when, Mo, when moses asked well did you do your stuff and he went well no i didn't do it and then yeah. you know that's yeah. obvious yeah so, so, yeah so know where everything fits yeah. and then based on your life and your goals right. choose to address things accordingly right yeah because you know that's the thing is is most of us I'm fortunate that I'm in this profession, so I have more time than most to do the things that I want to do. I also push myself at a level that most, the average person's not pushing themselves to, right? So I have the benefit of, um, you know, having the time to do these things. But the unique, the interesting thing here was even a lot of my strength training mentors, when you look at structural balance in terms of lift ratios and things like that, they were very good at don't get overwhelmed by all the different ratios of all the different this and that and the other, just take your very worst and improve those areas and then revisit later and see yeah. where you're at and revisit and see where you're at. And I think that you're really good at that approach because I think a lot of practitioners can be very overwhelming. Yeah. Not one in communication, but two in prescription, prescription, <laughs> right? So one, two things that I was super impressed with you and not that my opinion means anything, but just as an athlete and whatever I've dealt with thousands of athletes, tons of practitioners and physios and doctors and whatever. And the two things I was most impressed about was one, your communication to your prescription, which I, I think are two of the, the most important things because people get overwhelmed. Right. And let's just be honest. People don't want to stop doing the things that they're doing. We all know that they're going to continue doing yeah, it. So, so here's like, the thing is what can we do? So my goal is to not get you to stop doing the thing that you love. It's to make sure you know that the thing you love has prerequisites. And the further your body is right now from the prerequisites of the thing you love, the more likely the thing you love is going to create problems. So, hey, keep doing the thing you love. If there's some way we can do it within the limitations of your body right now, great. If we can't, let's be aggressively working on, again, closing that gap so you can continue to do it. Yeah, I think that's, as not only a practitioner, uh, whether it be medical, you know, chiro, physio, doctor, but even as a strength coach, I think that's a huge takeaway is is be careful how you communicate to people because words have meaning. Mm -hmm. Um, Really be as thorough and accurate and underwhelming with your prescription of what you're giving these people as you can. Um, I know for me and from dealing with the clients and athletes I have, they greatly appreciate that because most people they go to, it's just like overload, overload of information, overload of one, because not only do they just give you tons of information, they don't make it easy to understand, which I think is something that you do really well is you take a lot of these concepts. And when you talk about biotensegrity, dynamic systems theory, already people are like, they're, the they're ready to go to sleep, right? <laughs> but you make it 
very, very easy to understand by giving really great examples where people go, oh, okay, that makes tons of sense, right? Yeah. So it's, it's easy to take away. Whereas in my experience, most people are trying to, I guess, almost impress you with their big words and all these things that you just kind of are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And so <laughs> I actually have a post that's going to come up in oh, a couple of days about this and using big words. Okay. Yeah. So let's, uh, you guys are getting basically a sneak preview. Okay. Watch it. Right. No, you're getting the whole thing. So it was in my internship when I just moved here. Okay. And my job as the um, new intern was I was the exam doctor and I had to do what's called a report of findings. So this is basically, I'm the guy where they come in, I show them their x-rays, like, hey, this is what's going on, the treatment plan's going to take this long, I'm going to hand you off to the veteran doctor, okay? So I had this patient who was the lead of neurosurgery at, um, what's the downtown hospital uh, in St. Pete? Um, I should know, but I have no yeah, idea. Yeah, anyways, think of it. big local big hospital, hospital chief of neurosurgery, I'm a wet behind the ears, graduated like under a month ago, chiropractor, okay? So I'm thinking to myself, I have to explain spinal like alignment to a chief of neurosurgery. Fuck. <laughs> so I basically just nerded out. I went back to my textbooks. I'm like, I'm going to explain this. I'm going to talk about descending pathways. I'm talking about reflex, this, this, and this. I'm like, I am going <laughs> to make sure like... I don't look like an idiot. In there. Right. I'm going to make sure any question he wants to throw at me, like I'm going to have the answers ready to go. Right. Okay. So I go in, I'm explaining stuff. I'm using all the big words and talk about the neuroscience, the, the pathways and stuff like that. And he looks at me dead in the eye and he's older dude. He's like super chill. He's like, son, med school was a long time ago. <laughs> talk to me like you would talk to anyone else. So then I dumbed it down and he's like, all right. Now talk to me as if I was just in high school. And I explained it a little bit more simply. He's like, all right, now imagine I'm in kindergarten. How could you explain it to me that way? So I did that. And he's like, that was perfect. Do that forever. That was some crazy, that's good advice. Yeah. And that basically, I never forgot that. And I think about that all the time. It's not about how fancy can it be? Because if like, right. again, you like, you want to talk like pathways and neuroscience right. and tensegrity, like I can go deep down that rabbit hole, right. but that doesn't serve anyone. Right. What matters is can I, can we talk about basically why MapQuest sucks and why Google Maps is better? Right. Like, <laughs> like yeah. boom, we just explained the difference the between MapQuest and a GPS. Right? Yeah. Like it's exactly. Got it. Yeah. That we understand. I don't need to go into right. stories of Soviet block biomechanics right. right so yeah so that's why i chew that's why i communicate the way i do because i happen to have someone early in my journey that helped me with then you know i deal with a lot of athletes but also coaches um so i think that's a great thing for people to understand when you're talking to your clients when you're talking to your patients and things like that is like if your toddler can't really understand it change the way you communicate, right? Like that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's big. Everything doesn't have to sound big and fancy and unless you're nerding out with a, with a friend or whatever, yeah. but you know, otherwise, you know, th these things are actually very, very simple. Um, and a lot of times information is made, you know, even like when you think legal jargon, right? Like 
it's made to confuse you. So you don't have, you don't understand what's happening, right? You don't understand what's going on. So in, in medical jargon, it can kind of be the same way. Well, especially in like radiology. Yeah. So like, if you've ever seen, if you've ever had oh, an MRI, the thing you already know where we're going. Oh yeah. People yeah. who've come here, that, that is one of the biggest things I get is like, I just got an MRI and this is what they told me. And I'm like, oh God, here we yeah, go. Yeah, I already know what it is. So, here we go. So a radiologist's <laughs> job is, to, in America specifically, is to not get sued. Okay, so that's like job number one. Right. So their best way to not get sued is to not miss something. Oh. So their job is to make sure that they document everything. Oh. And not just document everything, who document everything in the way that describes it as the worst possible thing it could be. Right. Not necessarily what it is or what it means. It's like what it could be. Yeah. So anything that is not perfect is to be described in meticulous detail. Yeah. So when I was like taking my radiology classes, like that's basically what we were taught. Like this is how radiology works. Your job is to describe everything. And if you miss anything, basically you are now liable for what that thing you missed could be. Um, no. So the safe way to do it is to document everything. So imagine we did this with other parts of your body, okay? Imagine we called your one gray hair in your beard degenerative keratin disease, uh, indicative of uh, changing uh, melanocyte production. Right. Okay. That sounds kind of scary. <laughs> yeah. It's a fucking gray hair. I'm going to the doctor, right? <laughs> if we called a wrinkle, like a degenerative skin disease, it's a wrinkle. That's right. what happens when right. you age. Wrinkles show up. Right. Like, there are certain things that we are going to see in the bony tissue that's just a normal byproduct of being a human. It's not all pathology. Yeah, but it's all labeled as pathology because that's yeah, it. yeah. And I think one of the last things, but then we can kind of finish up with some some takeaways here is is I want you to talk a little bit about tradition, right? Mm -hmm. And 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 I want people to understand that because in a strength in in the strength training side of things, and definitely in the flexibility side of things, up until you know really now where we have social media and we not only do we have social media, but it's just the access that we have at this point. Um, I want people to understand how much of what they know and what they learn is actually tradition and how much of it is actually proven to work because, because you get, and there's two sides of this, right? Because it, it's an interesting place to be when you're a strength coach, when you're an Olympic coach and you're developing athletes and you don't have time to wait necessarily for certain studies to come out. This is how things work. This is how things work. But you do have strength coaches that only do things that this is what the you know they don't do anything else. But medicine and manual therapy, and strength training, and flexible even in flexibility, a lot. It's funny because one of my niches is I do strength training. A lot of people do strength. Training. Yeah, but I also teach people flexibility. Yeah. Not There's people do flexibility not, and strength. Well, right, together and well. So, you know, when I got into flexibility, I learned, especially when I'm – some gymnasts and, and dancers are actually some of the worst flexibility teachers because they just learn what their teacher learned, what their teacher learned, what their teacher learned, yeah. not actually principles that, you know, hold up against – biology and physiology mm -hmm. and all these things. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that because this is also mind blowing by the way. Um, 
Want to talk about hand washing? <laughs> hand, I want you to talk just hand, but you even talked about, um, I remember you did a post where you talked about orthopedic surgery, which was, I was floored when I heard that information. And you which talked post? When you just talked about basically how all orthopedic surgery, the premise of it is based on. Oh yeah, it's based on Newtonian mechanics. That's yeah, and, and, <laughs> and like the, the, the uh, I guess you could say the, the founder of orthopedic surgery. Oh, that yes. I literally watched that video. I think it was like probably 12 or 13 minutes long. I think I watched it over and over to make sure I was hearing all the things that I heard correctly because people are going to be blown away by some of the facts that you you presented in that video because when people got mad like well, i had some surgeon friends who got mad well, when, when people go like education based or, or quote unquote science based because you know not all science based or evidence based like what is the difference between science based and evidence based you okay know, so 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 so, so this is something too, that right? is really interesting so evidence based medicine has three pillars okay one of those pillars is science the other pillar is um, clinical success. The other pillar is patient expectation. Hmm. So the known nocebo placebo effect. So we know about the placebo effect. The placebo right. effect is I give you a drug that does nothing, right. but I tell you it's going to be amazing. And you get a res- your right. physiology does actually change. Right. Okay. So your expectation of good made it better. Right. The opposite is the nocebo effect. So let's say you've got something, an MRI, that is basically nothing. Right. But I tell you, oh, we've got serious grade four degenerative disc disease and this, right, this, right, and right. this. You're now going to feel worse. Right. So I've now increased your pain. You can see that with cancer patients. People, yeah. like, they don't even realize that they have tumors or things. And then they find out and all of a sudden exponential drop yeah. off. And, 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 you know, it's yeah. like. So, so we acknowledge that patient expectation is part of effective healthcare. So. If someone comes to me and they're like, I've been going to chiropractors my entire life. And whenever I get it, I get a headache, I get an adjustment and then I'm good for three years. Okay. That, it, and they've been, that's been their reality for 40 years. Right. And I say, no, that's actually bullshit. No, the adjustment only lasts for three hours. Here's why. Here's a bunch of evidence supporting that. Right. There's no benefit to me doing that. <laughs> right. So this person comes in, it's like, yeah, I get an adjustment. I feel great for three years. Okay. Boom. Done. Right. So in that case, effective healthcare is ignoring the science, is ignoring necessarily like what I've done in my clinic to get the best outcomes, right. knowing that their patient's expectation of I go to chiropractor, I get adjusted, I get I feel amazing forever. Yeah. Upside of me just adjusting them, there's almost no downside. Right. So I might as well do it. Right. Okay. So that is a huge piece. Okay. okay? Um I might have something, so let's look at, let's use cars, okay? So, um, actually, breathing, okay? So, there's never been a randomized control trial on breathing and long-term core stability pain outcomes, okay? Never been done, okay? It would be very, very hard to control that many variables, okay? However, there's some basic science on breathing, okay? And there are, sorry, there's some basic science, but there's no clinical science there, okay? And there is results that have gotten as a, as a provider, okay? Right. So I've got two of the three pillars there, 
Okay. So I might get effective healthcare because of those two things. Right. So understanding that evidence-based doesn't mean exclusively based on the current science, right. because by definition, the current science lags behind what people are willing to try. Right. And so if we waited for science, there would be no science. Right. So that we ironically enough, right? Yeah. So we have to try things. And after we get a ton of, Hey, this has worked clinically for 20 years. Let's actually do some studies to see why it worked clinically. Okay. So I'm not going to go into the father of surgery example. I am going to go into the hand-washing example, okay? okay? Right. So the there was this guy uh, back in the day. His name was Ignaz Semmelweis. It was like early 1800s, okay? There was something that happened when uh, women gave birth. They called it childbed fever, okay? And what would happen is the mortality rate of giving birth in a hospital was like 30% for new moms, okay? Wow. So if you went to a hospital... There was a 30% chance you were going to die in giving birth. Oh, wow. Okay? And the doctors basically just said, oh, just happened. There's some women, they just die giving birth. Okay? Right. Now, what was interesting, though, is this guy Semmelweis, he didn't just work in a hospital. He also worked with some of the midwives. Okay. And the death rate of the women in the, um, basically, giving birth by midwives was like 5%. It was wow. infinitely low. Significantly Yeah. Wow. So, it was like... Huh, maybe there's something here. Maybe there's something different that we're doing in the hospital that we're not doing for the midwives. Right. Okay? Now, in the hospital, now we've got to appreciate this is the 1800s, okay? Med students were helping with deliveries. So they're chopping up bodies, like doing cadaver studies with no gloves, going straight from digging into cadaver to oh delivering gosh. a baby. Oh my God. Okay. So as you can imagine, Moms didn't do too well with this. So they got infections and they died. And we called it childbed fever. Okay. So Semmelweis, he sees this and he's like, I don't know what it is, but maybe there's like some like weird cadaveric particles that we're bringing into the mom. This is before the microscope too. Right, okay. Right, right. So we just assume there's something here. Right. So it was like, I'm going to wash my hands. Okay. So we like took this cohort and he's like, Hey, here's what we're going to do. And he didn't tell them why we're doing it. It's like, hey, before we deliver birth or deliver babies, we're going to wash our hands. Right. Basically, they like just dip their hands in bleach and shove right, it out. Right, 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 right. Okay. So the rates of childbed fever with the doctors who were washing their hands dropped to the same level as the midwives. Oh, okay. And he's like, holy shit. We're causing childbed fever. It's not just that there's these random moms, some get it, some don't. Right, right. We're responsible for this. Yeah. So we basically like talk to all, like just anyone who would listen. He's like, guys, we're causing this. We have to wash our hands. And I can imagine a lot of people didn't want to listen. So what ended up happening <laughs> is so many people were so violently opposed by these ideas. He was committed. They sent him to an insane asylum. Oh my gosh. Because they're like, this guy is so radical thinking that we, the doctors, could be causing this, that like he's not sane. So he basically died in a mental institution because of the radical idea that washing hands might be important. So fast forward. When do you think hand washing became a widely accepted part of medical practice? I have no idea. 1983. Like almost 200 years later. <laughs> so science and what's done practically 
can sometimes have a pretty long lag time. Right. Okay. So you asked a little bit earlier, how is it that no one is learning about tensegrity? It took 150 years to figure out hand washing. Wow. Okay, that puts it into perspective. See, this is what I was talking about. He puts things into perspective, <laughs> makes it really easy. To I mean, that's that's crazy. But then that's why it's funny. And I, I, I you know, I always use Charles because Charles Poliquin is a strength yeah. coach has, a, has had a huge impact on me. Mm -hmm. But if you look to the '80s and '90s, he was ridiculed by everybody mm -hmm. in the strength world. He was yeah. he was crazy. Mm -hmm. But now, a lot of his principles are in every strength training program everywhere and mm -hmm. he's basically you know why he still has some ideas that people consider radical you know people can't deny that he's one of the true geniuses in the strength world now so it's they're the same thing for as that that lag that kind of occurs the other interesting thing kind of last thing i want to talk about is a lot of people i and i get this question a lot is why funny enough and I'm just going to go ahead and say it because I'm not afraid of saying who squat university just, just <laughs> made, just made yeah. a post about why no one should basically do Jefferson curls. So, you know, he didn't say, and, and I, I actually had a lot of hope after this because there were majority of the comments I would say were people at this point now disagreeing. Mm -hmm. um, if you would have asked probably five years ago, it would have been the opposite, right? Like everyone would have been like, yeah, man, hundred percent. And then of course there were still those people but there were more people that were disagreeing. And basically he said that, you know, trying to, or Jefferson curls should not be used basically to train the positional strength needed for Olympic weightlifting, which I think is one of the things that a lot of people. Well, I agree. I agree. As I well. agree. I agree. I think it's, I think that's true. I think that when you put it in that context, it is true. But then if you continue down in the comments, people asked him to give more context and if did he think it was an applicable movement, um, you know, in any other context, at which point he said no. He said that there's no context in which he would ever train a Jefferson curl. Now, I know from my experience. Have you ever picked up a child? Yeah, I, I know. It's, it's ever in your life. I, yeah, I have two of them. Okay. Yeah. Have you ever had a time where your child was getting into something where if you didn't act fast, they might die? Yes. Like yeah. Quickly. All the yeah. time. All like the time. they're about yeah. to fall on their face or about to run out of the street. Yeah, exactly. or something crazy. Okay. Yeah. Yep. In those moments, did you have the option to think about making sure you had a perfectly neutral spine on your movement? No, I did not. No, you went as fast as you could to get your body to prevent your child from dying. Right. And it might've involved a curved spine and your child doesn't weigh or weighs more than nothing. Right. So if life is going to involve, you needing to pick something up rapidly with a curved spine, you might want to prepare those tissues for it. Yeah. And we already know in most sports, like you can just watch any game of any sport and just fast forward through and then just pause it at almost any point and then just look on the field or whatever. And you're going to see tons of, no one's going to have a neutral spine. No one, no, right? no so, one on the field. <laughs> so we know that for training positional strength, it's not necessary. Why for spine health, can a Jefferson, I don't think it's the only option, but why can a Jefferson curl be so beneficial? Because I know from my experience training athletes, especially guys with back pain, you know, they are stuck in not even a neutral spine. They're usually stuck in an extended spine where their mm -hmm. lumbar is just yep. so tight oh, yeah. and their QLs are so tight that their whole lower back. And again, this goes into the biotensegrity, right? Like the, this forces all on one side of the spine 
are so tight that they're pulling, but then on the other side, there's no strength at all. Yeah, no they, awareness. There's yeah. no awareness at all. So there's nothing to even balance it out, even if these guys wanted to go neutral. So, you know, one, I think, you know, why is it important in your words, not only a Jefferson curl, but just having a variety, and I know we've touched on it, but I guess kind of to close out, I, but I still get a lot of questions about the Jefferson curl specifically, and even a lot about a lot of McGill's work and squat you because squat you seems to be kind of the, uh, predecessor, you know, I don't know what, you know, he's coming in after behind McGill. It seems like he's kind of yeah. trying to take the throne. Right, so, so it's, it's really quite simple. It's that a muscle is, can only be, be trained to absorb force where it's trained. Simple. Simple. So if I, only did bicep, if I only did isometric bicep curls, this is all I ever did. I just did flexed arm hangs. Right. Okay. I wouldn't expect to have pull-up strength right. because me being strong here doesn't mean I'm strong through my full range of motion. So if I ever in my life need to do anything that isn't here, I should probably prepare myself right. for it. If I were to biopsy a muscle of your spine and put it under a microscope, and biopsy a muscle from your quad and pull it under my put it under a microscope. We can't really tell the difference. It's muscle tissue. <laughs> muscle tissue responds to the right. same rules. Progressive overload. Right. That is angle and direction specific. If I don't train angle and direction specific, the tissue can't get stronger. And if the tissue is exposed to more force than it can handle in a given position, it will fail. There you go. Simple enough. Boom. <laughs> super, easy. super easy. So I guess mm-hmm. to close out, um, you know, you guys, you guys have already heard tons of, you guys know how I train, how I program, what my thoughts and principles are. A lot of things that um, I now know and apply in the way I think more than anything um, comes from Moses. So in closing, um, you know, maybe some important tips you could give to people, some maybe um you know, things you recommend, don't recommend, or, or even, you know, what would you tell yourself, you know, 15, 10 to 15 years ago when you were, you know, a young athlete and you were tri- like, cause that's, that's a lot of the market too, is, you know, a lot of these kids get so so much different information from so many different sources. It's all conflicting and usually it's bad information. So what kind of information would you give yourself? And in closing, you know, what are some important points and topics do you think that people should take away from this uh, going forward until next time. So number one, breathing drives everything. So if you, I can selfishly say, check out my breathing resources I have online. It doesn't matter if it's through me. If you've got someone local who can be hands-on, way better because hands-on you're going to get way more feedback. Um, Nerd out, do learn about breathing. If you want to know more, Jeff can help you out. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, that would be number one. Number two, understand tensegrity. Yeah. So it doesn't mean that you need to know it as deep as we do, but just understanding that, hey, if my muscles and soft tissues are what they're supposed to, my joints will be healthy. Yeah. Number three, understand dynamic systems theory. Understand that options make you better at no matter what it is that you do. Even if it's the same thing. And then the, la- and then the last piece would be, we look at fitness in terms of strength and speed and power and endurance. Foundational to all of those is how well does each piece work. Right. So we've built our fitness pyramid on the wrong foundation. 
And that foundation is do your pieces work properly. Yeah. So I would say do something, have something in your training program that looks at body control and awareness with the same, ideally a higher level of attention right. to all the other parameters. Right. Yeah. Put it in first. Uh, you know, that's a lot of the stuff that, that I learned from Moses goes into a warm up or something like that because, um, you know, things creep back in. You know, I, I think that it's something that you, you know, certain areas, especially playing baseball for 14 years, it takes time. It takes time to get rid of habits and a lot of these things. So I put a lot of this, that stuff, you know, hip rotation, um, shoulder, really hip rotation and shoulder rotation mostly go before everything because, you know, we didn't really talk about it today, but rotation is, is kind of the bottom of the pyramid in terms of movement, right? Mm-hmm. So the more rotation you have, um, you know, the more options you'll have even in, in linear patterns, you know? Yeah. Um, so um, we'll get yeah. into that next time. Yeah, we'll get into <laughs> we'll get into the next. We'll save that because that's that's a really good that's that's like an hour long discussion in itself. But yeah, I think that was great. I I've, I love. Thank you for finally sitting down and, and, and chatting with me. It's long, long, long overdue. Yeah, I, was, I was in the neighborhood, um, so yeah, you were, you were in the neighborhood. Um, if you guys don't follow Moses yet, please go follow him on Instagram. It's at Dr. Moses Bernard. Oh, just, just Moses Bernard. Just at Moses, at Moses Bernard. All my all my stuff is just that. So okay. my website is MosesBernard.com. Perfect. Instagram, at Moses Bernard. Yeah. Facebook, at yeah. Moses Bernard. It's all at easy Moses enough. Bernard. See, he's, he, he keeps the same trend. Everything is simple and easy. So at Moses Bernard, um, all his, a lot of resources that he puts out for free on Instagram, where you can go start learning some of these basic concepts. Um, if you haven't, if I haven't sent them to you already, or you haven't got them from me, you can go find them there. Um, he even has them on YouTube. I think I've seen some of your a videos. couple things on YouTube over things. the next, actually a couple of months is, uh, okay. transposing a lot of my Instagram okay, good, stuff to YouTube. Good, so good. Yeah. So I know, I know some of your Tensegrity models. So since we talked about that, I would say for everyone who listened, go check those out. It'll give you some really good, um, you know, visual on what he kind of talked about and he discussed and he goes a little bit more into detail. Um, I think you've done it on the hips and on the spine at least. Yeah. Um, and, and again, those what, are the only 10 second models I can buy. Yeah, I don't have any of the other ones. And yet. when you understand just the principles, again, the application to everything becomes quite clear. So it's, um, you know, in, and then I, I know for sure that the guys that are in on my platform now I've shared some of the basic resources that you've given me the PDFs and things like that, which are, are perfect. Um, I think there it's enough information where it's easy to understand, but like, like you know, yeah. I've depending I've, on how deep you go into that article, how deep you want to go. <laughs> and do you want to start clicking on all the sources because I've been there and then you start watching all the, the, the videos. And I think probably that you'll agree. Um, one of the last resources to go check on biotensegrity because he's kind of the, the guy who brought it to the forefront is uh, Stephen Levin. And that's uh, I think, is it just VEN or PHEN? The V. Uh, Stephen. Anyways, if you just Google yeah, Stephen sure. or YouTube. I think his page is just biotensegrity.com though. Okay, so, so biotensegrity.com, super easier. If you YouTube Stephen Levin, his stuff pops up right at the top. And again, he, he, ex- he also explains it in very, very easy to understand language. So thanks again, Moses. Again, guys, uh, go check him out. And thanks for sitting with me and thanks for chatting with me. Thanks, man. It's been fun.